This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Romans 16. It begins on page 950 in your Bibles, in your rows, and it's also printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epatnus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Empleatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosia. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater and my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Well, kudos to Cheryl for tackling all those names this morning. 
I think Sosipiter is my favorite of those names. That's a pretty cool one. By the way, if you go to the ESV online, you know, there's a, a female Irish reader and a male American reader, and they say all those names totally differently. So I think it really means it's just ollie, ollie, oxen free on pronunciations there. But um, Concluding Unscientific Postscript. That title comes from a book by Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard wrote a, uh, another book called a more famous book called Philosophical Fragments, and then his sort of part two to that was called Concluding Unscientific Postscript. Now, it was meant to be an ironic title because the postscript was actually five times longer than the first book, and so I feel a little bit justified in going five times longer than normal uh, this morning. I'm kidding. I won't do that to you, uh, although pastors are sort of always angling for a little bit extra time, but uh, other folks have picked up on that title. Uh, concluding unscientific postscript. And so you'll often find at the end of a book as an epilogue or maybe the last chapter, this as a title. And it works, right? Uh, Concluding just means we're wrapping it up. Unscientific refers to the fact that it won't be a systematic presentation, but the smattering of some last thoughts. And then you know what a postscript is, right? You write PS at the bottom of a letter. That's what it means, postscript, right? And it doesn't always have a direct connection to what's come before. It's something that's tacked on to the end. And actually, that's exactly what we have in Romans chapter 16, a concluding unscientific postscript. The body of the letter to the book of Romans ends where Pastor Brian left us off last week at the end of chapter 15, where Paul presents Jesus Christ as the hope of both Jews and Gentiles. And then he tells the Romans that he hopes to visit them soon And then finishes chapter 15 by saying, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Letter over. Or at least it could be letter over. But probably something like this happened. Paul and Tertius, his scribe, they finished chapter 15 after weeks, maybe months of work on it. But before they seal it up and send it on, they decide to let it sit for a few days. And so Paul comes back and says, you know what? I really should send some personal greetings. Verses 1 to 16. Then he thinks, oh, I've got one more warning that they just have to hear, verses 17 to 20. Then Timothy and a few others come along and say, make sure and say hi from us, verse 21 to 25. And then finally, the night before sending it off, Paul thinks we have to end where we started, praising the only wise God, verse 25 to 27. So we're going to look at this postscript Uh, this morning and see what God has for us as we wrap up our series on remembering. So let's pray together as we begin, as we take a look at Romans 16. Father God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Would you help me to speak faithfully and help us to listen intently, not that we might hear the words of a preacher, but that we might hear from you. We, We ask that you would speak to us by the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in every Christian ministry, in every church, uh, you tend to have purity people and unity people. Purity people and unity people. You know, purity people, those are the theologians among us, right? The thinkers, uh, you, if this is you, you emphasize doctrine over almost anything else. Doctrine, truth, this is what matters. This is what the church is about. That's the drum that we should be banging. And if Feelings are hurt or people are neglected. That's the cost of doing business, right? Purity people. 
But then there are unity people, and unity people tend to emphasize relationships over everything else. We were made for community, you might say. Lives are changed in community, and so people are the most important thing. And in emphasizing people and wanting harmony, we might downplay doctrine in order to keep everybody happy and getting along. Now, hopefully, you're wondering, do we really have to choose? Do we really need to pick between loving doctrine and loving people? The answer is no. We should be striving for both. But the reality is, by background or temperament, we all tend to gravitate toward one end of the spectrum or another. And it's in texts like these that it serves as a helpful corrective to all of us, no matter where we tend to gravitate. Because the Apostle Paul was both a lover of people and a lover of truth. And so let's think about how this text Uh, pushes us, challenges us in those areas. First, Paul is a lover of people, and we're to be, by his example, lovers of people. Just take note of the, the deep personal relationships that Paul has formed with all sorts of people, right? Represented in this list of names. He used the word greet 19 times. He uses 33 names mentioned here between people in Rome where he's sending the letter and in Corinth from which he's sending this letter, where he's at, where he's writing. This is the way that Paul did ministry in general. This isn't a one-off kind of example. Paul didn't just simply show up and preach the truth and then move on. He didn't just drop a truth bomb and then move on to the next place. Paul believed that real ministry happened through real and deep relationships. Look at how he described this, his ministry philosophy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he put it this way, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become dear to us. So let me just mention a few of the people that Paul talks about here in chapter 16. He says that verse, in verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the Lord at Sincrea, You may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This is kind of a letter of recommendation, you might say, for Phoebe. Most commentators believe that she was the one carrying this letter from Paul in Corinth where he was to the people in Rome. And so he's vouching for her as an important part of the church and where he's writing this from. And he calls Phoebe a servant In the Lord, and the word for servant is the word for mercy, ministry, diakonos. She's also a a patron, a benefactor of missionaries. She housed missionaries and probably financially supported them as well, including Paul. Next, he mentions Prisca and Aquila, who, verse 3 says, are my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So Prisca and Aquila were a married couple, Jewish Christians who were from Italy but had to flee Rome when the Emperor Claudius declared a ban on public worship by Jews. They became tent makers in Corinth where they probably met Paul. It seems they were part of Paul's core group in Corinth in Acts Chapter 18, it tells us about that. And at some point, they actually risked their lives on Paul's behalf. So this is an important relationship to him, a dear relationship, a close relationship. And Prisca and Aquila eventually returned to Rome as church planters. 
after the Emperor Claudius dies. Verse 5, Paul says, Greet my beloved Epinetus, who's the first convert to Christ in Asia. Epinetus may have been led to Christ by Paul in Ephesus, which was on the western edge of the Roman Empire. And tradition has it that he later became the leader of the church in Carthage in North Africa. Verse 6, Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Now, we don't know much about this Mary, but we should know how often Paul mentions women, how highly valued their roles were in the early church. Skipping down a little bit, verse 10, Aristobulus, who was thought to be the grandson of Herod the Great and a longtime resident of Rome, a confidant of the emperor. So here you see the gospel working its way into the households of the upper crust via the servants and the working class people. Verse 13, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. You hear the sort of dear, tender language of Paul, but Rufus is an interesting case. He appears in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 15, as the son of Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene was the man who was made to carry Jesus' cross to Golgotha. Now, isn't that extraordinary? Simon was a Jewish man visiting Jerusalem for the feast, and suddenly he's pressed into doing the most odious thing almost that a Jew could possibly imagine doing, carrying a cross for the Romans to do a crucifixion. And yet, apparently, through this experience, God brings Simon to faith in Jesus. And his son Rufus also believes and becomes part of this first church work in Rome. And of course, there's many more names here. And we don't have time to mention this morning, but just I want you to note the breadth and the depth of these relationships that this list of names represents. Romans 16 reminds us of the importance of community. Jesus saves us not just out of our sin, but he saves us into community. The question is, have we made sense of that? Have you made sense of what this means for your life? Eugene Peterson put it this way. He says, the question is not, am I going to be part of a community of faith, but how am I going to live in this community of faith? He goes on, he says, God's children do different things. Some run away from it and pretend that the family doesn't exist, run away from the church. Some move out and get an apartment on their own from which they return to make occasional visits, nearly always showing up for the parties and bringing a gift to show that they really do hold others in fond regards for this casual connection. Some would never dream of leaving, but cause others to dream it for them. (laughs) For they are always criticizing what is served at the meals, quarreling with the way the housekeeping is done, and complaining that the others in the family are either ignoring or taking advantage of them. This is the quarrelsome. And some, determined to find out what God has in mind, but placing them in this community called a church, learn how to function in it harmoniously and joyously, and develop the maturity that is able to share and exchange God's grace with those who might otherwise be viewed as nuisances. How are you going to live? How are you going to live within the community of faith? In some sense, this has been the theme of our whole series of remembering. What does it mean to work out gospel truth in the context of gospel community? A survey was taken recently in a suburban area of Houston to find out what motivated people to choose the particular church where they became members. 12% chose their church because of prior denominational affiliation. 8% because of the architectural beauty of the worship space. 
18% chose because of location, but do you know what was the highest? A whopping 37% were influenced by the fact that friends and neighbors took an interest in them and invited them. If you want to be a part of New City's growth and impact in our city, the truth is we need you. Right? You've got to meet friends. You've got to invite people to come around. Programs are not going to reach this culture and this city for Christ. No matter how dynamic or well-planned, we've got to invite people and then warmly welcome those who are invited or, or show up for some other reason here. You know, in our new members class, I always challenge everybody to think about that friend that you have in another town. Right? Somebody maybe that hasn't been to church in a while or maybe never at all. This friend that maybe you've been praying for. And just imagine for a second that this person, this friend of yours, makes their way to a church service for some reason. And you've been praying for them. You've been hoping that this would happen. What kind of welcome do you want them to have when they get there? Right? With all the obstacles that might be in place to, to get them there in the first place, when they finally make it in the door, what kind of hospitality are you hoping that they would receive? And the truth is, everybody that makes their way into our church for one reason or another has somebody probably praying for them in a similar respect. You, right, those of you who are regulars and members, I'm talking to you specifically here this morning, we have that responsibility to give that kind of welcome, that kind of hospitality to others who God brings here. We have to move on here, but truth people, don't overlook this. Paul's ministry was not only about proclaiming and teaching the truth, it was also about loving people. So we're to be lovers of people. But then there's a flip side to this, because Paul's ministry was not only about loving people, but also about loving the truth, about loving doctrine. Verse 17, Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In 1347, a very important event happened in the history of the world. A small Genoese outpost came under siege, came under attack. Genoa is a northern port in Italy, probably most well-known for Christopher Columbus. Uh, but this outpost was in Crimea on the Black Sea near present-day Ukraine. And they were being attacked by the Kipchak Mongols, part of Genghis Khan's uh, enormous army. And the Genoese in this little outpost, they fought the Kipchaks to a stalemate, but then the, the Kipchaks did something that changed the battle and actually changed all of history. They began to catapult dead bodies into the city. This is a little bit late for Halloween, but you can imagine this terrifying scenario, right? They, they launched these corpses, disease-ridden corpses, over the walls and into the city. And within a few days, folks within the city began to have swollen lymph nodes on their neck and their groin. And within a week, a huge number were dead. Some of the Genoese managed to escape on ships and made their way back to Messina in Italy, bringing with them the Black Death, the bubonic plague, 
which began then to spread all over Europe. Tens of millions died. By population percentage, anyway, it was the greatest plague in the history of humankind. This is not unlike a spiritual plague that Paul is warning against here. Paul warns about false teachers plaguing the church. And he points to the fact that Satan is behind it all. He's lobbing this false teaching into the church. Now, even so, Paul reminds us that we have a victorious church because Jesus Christ is our king, right? Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So we should have confidence. There should be no panic. But we do need to be aware. And what do we need to be aware of? What do we need to learn about these false teachers? Well, first, Paul says he warns us about their motives. Such persons, he says, do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites. So be it pride or ambition or money or power, these teachers don't serve Christ. Ultimately, they serve themselves, which I don't know about you, but for me, this makes me want to check my own motives, my own aspirations. The quickest way that we can fall into bad theology is by having our motives and desires pointed inward at ourselves rather than upward toward Jesus, our King. Paul also tells us about their means. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. You know, it would be nice if false teachers advertised themselves as false teachers, but that doesn't happen, does it? They sound good. They sound wise. They act as if they have your best interest at heart. They are, as Jesus put it, wolves in sheep's clothing. One of the pillars of church history was a man by the name of Athanasius. He was known for his work, the Council of Nicaea, the sort of doctrinal formulations that we have in the, in the church uh, around the Trinity, the triune God, the God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A lot of that is done uh, with the work of Athanasius sort of as the, as the bedrock. But for much of his life, Athanasius was not celebrated as a, a pillar of the church. In fact, he was ostracized. The reason being is that he was up against a guy named Arius, Arius who taught that Jesus was not God. And in fact, Athanasius, he was very much on the minority. Arius seemed to be winning the day because he was so convincing, he was so attractive as a teacher. Athanasius was exiled five times, five times kicked out of not just his church, not just his town, but his whole country. Finally, at the end of his life, when he was vindicated, they gave him a little meme. I don't know if they had memes back then, but something like that. Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, because that's what most of his life felt like, because there were others who were wanting to hear this smooth talk and this flattery. Paul tells us finally that the result of this false teaching would be that they would cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Satan will catapult the plague of false teaching into the church with an eye toward dividing it and destroying it. Now, what is Paul's prescription against this plague? How do we protect against it? Very quickly now, he says, you need to watch out. Watch out for those who cause divisions. The Greek word is, uh, it's skopeo. Literally, scope it out. Scope out the situation. And part of doing this is going through life just expecting that there's going to be some false teaching. Right? We don't have to do that with angst. We don't have to do that with anxiety. Remember Paul's confidence in the triumph of Jesus and his church. But we go into things being aware that this is out there. 
And the best way to be able to discern what's true and what's not is to commit ourselves to the regular study of the scripture. So first, right, go to a church that teaches the Bible and not just the, you know, 10 steps to whatever, okay? That's the first thing is go to a church that regularly teaches the scripture. Secondly, gather with other Christians even outside of worship and read the Bible and discuss it together. Get in a group that does something like that or informally just do it. But then finally, find a way daily to engage with scripture, a Bible reading plan, our readings and prayers that are at the end of your bulletin each week are great ways to do this if you're new to this, getting into reading the scripture. So do it in worship, do it uh, in groups with others, do it individually yourself, and then just rinse and repeat. Do it over and over for a long period of time, and that's how you become prepared to deal with false teachers. The knowledge and wisdom that comes from engaging in the Bible is cumulative. That means there's no shortcut to this. There's no curriculum that's going to fast track you to this kind of wisdom. You can't hook up to the matrix and download all that you need here. You need to make a practice, a habit of engaging with Scripture over time. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why the Bible often likens our relationship with God to a walk or a journey. How do you go on a long walk? How do you go on a journey? It's not with stupendous movements, right? If you start doing cartwheels down, you're not going to make it very far. How do you go on a long journey? Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot for a long time. It's the simple things, right? And the same is true in our journey with the Lord, right? The simple practices of Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, worship, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, over years and decades. Do this, And you'll start to be able to spot the things that don't match up. So Paul says, watch out. Watch out for false teaching and false teachers. But secondly, he says, avoid them. When you see it, avoid them. At the end of verse 17, right? Just very simply, avoid them. You know, I try to make a joke about the old Domino's commercial and, and nobody from, like, was old enough from the 80s to remember. Do you remember the Noid? Does anybody remember that? Yeah, a few. I see some. Avoid the Noid was the big Domino's commercial. Yeah, it's, it was kind of dumb then too, but uh, the, the thing was, the, the Noid ruined pizzas, that was the thing. Uh, false teachers ruin Christians or churches, right? Uh, and that's what we should avoid here. Paul says this is a serious enough deal that you shouldn't flirt with it. Stay away, he says. Don't have fellowship with false teachers. Don't draw in too close. You may think you're influencing them, but suddenly they'll be influencing you. Now, please be aware that Paul is not calling you to avoid every Christian or every person that you have disagreements with, right? We've talked about this the last few weeks. Romans chapter 14, Paul talks about how to get along with weaker brothers and sisters, those with whom you have disagreements on secondary issues. But what he has in mind here are people who would teach deviations from core truths that are taught in Scripture and that are promoting these ideas to others. He just says simply avoid them. And third, and this is another way of reiterating what we said when watch out, but to discern. Right? J.B. Phillips translates the end of verse 19, you are to be experts in good and not even beginners in evil. You're to be experts in the good, not even beginners in evil. And John Stott suggests some great questions to ask when you are confronted with a new idea. When you come across a new idea, you have to ask, does it agree with Scripture? Does it glorify Christ and does it promote goodness? Does it agree with Scripture? Does it glorify Christ? Does it promote goodness? 
We're to be lovers of people. We're to be lovers of the truth, lovers of doctrine. But then finally, Romans 16 reminds us we're also to be lovers of worship. Paul concludes this entire letter. Some say his greatest doctrinal letter, the book of Romans. And how does it end? It ends with doxology. Doxa means praise. Logos means word. So a doxology is a word of praise. Verse 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings and been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's all about God and his glory for Paul. Loving people is ultimately for God's glory. Toward the end of others knowing and experiencing and enjoying the glory of God. Loving doctrine right, is so that we can praise him more and praise him better and praise him more truly. Don't miss this. For all Paul's theologizing, for all his commands to love and to influence people, all of this, he ends the whole letter by simply reminding us the reason for which we do it all. The glory of God. Paul's relationships were Christ-saturated relationships. Look at the language he uses. Fellow workers in Christ. My beloved in the Lord. I greet you in the Lord. He spent time with people in order to display Jesus to them. That they might know him. That they might enjoy him. That they might experience union with Jesus like he was. Likewise, all theology is meant to become doxology. Loving doctrine is not just an attempt to get a bigger brain or just to be right for the sake of being right. It's always meant to spill forth into praise like it does here for Paul. Again, this is his grandest theological treatise. He's told us about the gospel in Romans, about the power of God, the mystery of God's forgiveness made available through faith in Jesus Christ. And then what's he left to do after all that? All Paul can do is praise the only wise God to him be the glory. Eugene Peterson put it this way. God made us, redeems us, provides for us. The natural, honest, healthy, logical response to that is praise to God. When we praise, we are functioning at the center. We are in touch with the basic core reality of our being. And we have the opportunity to apply this right now as we come to the Lord's Supper as we continue to worship and singing, as we cap off the Christian liturgical year, as we look ahead to Advent next week to worship, to give praise to the only wise God, to God be the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together and we'll come to the Lord's Supper. And Father, we thank you for this teaching. We thank you for this whole section of the book of Romans that we've had the chance to reflect upon throughout this fall um, as we've been thinking about what it means to be remembered, to be brought back together after a period of time being apart. Lord, we, uh, we want to be people who live out the truth in community. We want to be people not just of gospel doctrine, but gospel culture. We want to be people who cling to the truth and figure out how to work it out in community with one another. And so would you teach us to be experts in the good, not even beginners in evil? Would you teach us love and forbearance? Would you teach us what it means 
to, uh, to really be the body of Christ and ultimately to be a witness to our neighborhood and to our city around us. Would you make us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.